So, are you here? No, wait. Well, okay. That's not really a question you need to necessarily answer. Truth is, we already know the answer. We know you're here. We can't necessarily see it, but, you know, you're putting off the vibe. We can feel it. Can you feel us here, too? No, no, no. Don't answer that question. Think it. Feel it. Be it. Look, we're not just messing with you. We're trying to introduce this episode of The Paul Leslie Hour. It's a show that's been going on for 18 years, getting close to 19 years. We could try and pretend otherwise, but hey, you know the truth. And this is not the first interview Paul E. Leslie did with Billy Gill. No, 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 this would be the second one. I can tell a lot of you already know this fact. You know, this is the second interview with singer-songwriter Billy Gill. Now, Billy's a cool cat. You like him. And hey, we do too. Look, Billy likes you. It's important to note that Billy likes chocolate and the Beatles. Now, what does that say about him? Well, it's nothing to be ashamed of. We're not big on being ashamed, nor is Billy Gill. The vibe of Billy? We like to think it suits us. Probably suits you, too. If you feel it suits you, you can also help keep the Paul Leslie Hour on the air. These interviews are made possible by people like you. Just visit www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's start the interview. Billy Gill and Paul Leslie, their second time around. Enjoy, friends. All right. I'm sitting down with Billy Gill. Thank you so much for joining me yet again. Happy to be here yet again. It's been too long. So you're on tour right now. I'm just wrapping up my tour. Yes, today's the last day. What did you learn? Wow. Oh, man. I learned that it's a hustle. You can't you can't pretend that it's going to be without adversity. But I like that. That's actually really good because that's where the growth comes from. That's where the edges of what you've done so far start to expand. And I learned that um, – I'll give you an example on the road – so I put this together. This is my first time going out. And when I was in Philadelphia playing a set, I learned there was a house band. And, you know, the rest of my shows I was playing solo, which is all well and good and has its own intimacy and its own value. But playing with a band is nothing like it, you know. And these guys were really good. Band called The Living Sample in Philly. And so I got there and saw there's this house band. And I'm like, oh man, I want to play with these guys. But they're not going to be able to just learn my song by osmosis, you know? So I got to chart this out. So I'm sitting in this bar and I'm charting out my songs by hand. And meanwhile, there's this nightlife happening all around me. These two women from California, and I'm in Philly at this point, are like kind of haranguing me, trying to <laughs> get me to talk to them and, uh, you know, do shots with them and stuff. And I'm like, well, it's really nice to meet you, but I got to... Got to buckle down and, and do these charts. Anyway, but but it was cool. I mean, it's a really cool experience to be sitting in a bar. You just want to sound as good as possible. So, you, you stretch yourself a little bit and you write out charts by hand in the midst of this craziness. And then we had a great set. So, one thing I learned is the adversity is growth 
and uh, plenty more, but that's a start, you know. What did you find that the people who came out to see you, what did you find them to be like? There was some varying, yeah, there's a wide swath of variety from town to town. You know, in, in Raleigh, when I played in Raleigh, there was, there was some really, yeah, I mean, they were, they were music lovers there. You know, they just wanted to hear, they just wanted to hear music and they just wanted to, uh, they were very warm a little bit. You know, in Raleigh, it was a little bit of a scene of like mixed genres. So it was like a hip hop artist opening for a folk singer, you know, so it was, it was weird. But the people were cool. And then, uh, the next gig I played after that was in, uh, actually I had to, I was supposed to play in Virginia, but I got this gig in New York that I had to go straight up there. So I drove straight from North Carolina to New York and uh, playing in New York. It's really interesting. The, the, the audience there was more inclined. The feedback I got was they really liked my lyrics, hmm. you know, so maybe a little bit more of like an intellectual kind of thing, but very emotional too. Like, I think that the poetry went over well in New York. Philly, it was the groove. People in Philly really liked the groove of the song and, and they wanted to dance. Part of that is probably because I was playing with an awesome band. Virginia, it was, it was more subdued, it was calm, you know, and I'm sure any different given night or different club, going to get any number of different responses. But um, that's the great thing about playing live is just you put something out and you see what you get back. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it feels like you're playing into a room filled with memory foam and you're getting nothing back and you're like, all right, well, this is, at least it's quiet. <laughs> at least it's comfortable. But then other nights, you know, it's like the energy's just pinging around and you're really feeding off of what you're getting. Billy Joel has a great quote. Playing live is like sex. You make a noise, they make a noise. And if it's too quiet, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, that, that holds true. <laughs> that holds true. You mentioned that there was a, the one crowd that they liked the lyrics and the other crowd that liked the groove. In your own music, is there something that you are more attracted to in a song? Is it the lyrics or is it the melody that you write? Well, the melody is what compels me. I think that's one one of my strengths as an artist is I really like the melodies that I come up with because that's the uh, that's the kind of mental aspect of it. The lyrics are intellectual. I make a little distinction there between the mental and the intellectual. The, the lyrics communicate the thought, the idea. And actually in my lyrics these days, I'm really trying to work with how can I manipulate someone's subconscious in a way that's like not trying to mess with them, but trying to at the very least wake something up inside of them that has awakened inside of me. Mm-hmm. And that's the great thing about it. It's one inner life relating to another inner life. But the melody is the, I guess it's like you kind of catch a wave with a melody and that's why you'll be like singing a really good melody in your head mm-hmm. and it, it'll stay with you. And it's kind of like if the lyrics are the medicine, the melody is the the candy coating that helps it go down smoother. So I think they both work together. You're saying that you want to... uh you, you said, like, affect the subconscious of the other person. Yeah. Why? Yeah, why? Well, we're in this together. It's a great thing about being an artist is uh, being able to be able to talk in a language that is 
kind of beyond the, the surface of a person. You know, you meet somebody and you might like them well enough. You might even want to be friends with them, but there's a certain amount of time it's going to take mm-hmm. to just, you know, get in there and be close to them. Right. Right. But with music, what I'm putting out is going right, like main line into your nervous system. And it's like, if the groove is right, your body will start moving. It's like what's happening in my nervous system is now happening in your nervous system. And together we're, we're having this experience. And so this is a, a thought I've had uh, in recent years of, I've really admired the, the bardic tradition, which is this, you know, like Homer was the, the quintessential bard, right? He would, he would do these long epic stories and often improvise and it would last like, two days and people would just like come and go and listen to him. And it was never the same story twice, but the experience that, that folks have in that is it's an awakening. It's an awakening of, of some other dimension. And, and we're all in this together. What I mean by that is the things that have awakened inside of me are largely due to things that have awakened inside of other people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's just doing my part to wake up something inside of someone else from my point of view, might be useful. You know. How many songs do you think you have written so far? In my life? Yeah. I have not kept count. Yeah. I, if I had to guess, I think I'm, I might be around, might be around 40, 50 songs. Yeah. Probably a difficult question. If you had to pick one of those songs to represent you, which one would it be? Well, they're all like, they're all like my babies. Some of them came out funny looking and some of them, <laughs> some of them are beautiful, but I think they all represent a part of me. If I had to pick one song that speaks to maybe the, the, the essence of who I am, the one that's coming to mind is this Mississippi song. And, and this is, it's not about me. It's, it's about, it's about the Mississippi river, a mythologized version of the Mississippi river. In the story or in the the song, the Mississippi River is is uh, is a, a river that it's actually a, a girl who's taken the form of a river. This is entirely made up, by the way. A, a little bit. There's some source material from an Indian myth about the Ganges, but I kind of applied that to an American symbol. So the girl is uh, she's come down to Earth. For whatever reason, in the song, I say she fell and crashed in Minnesota. She's only visiting this world. And, and the, there was some sort of redemptive quality of the river to wash the sins of the land away. And, you know, setting it in the South. Historically, you know, this album, this most recent album that I'm releasing, it, there's a lot of stuff in it, particularly in the first four songs. It's a suite about the American the American story in a way. And so the sadness, the darkness that is in the Southeast historically, uh, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, talking about racial things mostly, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of darkness in the South, which I think is part of what makes it such an interesting place. You know, it's, it's a, it's a remembering and it's a, and it's a redemptive thing to imagine the river as having some sort of divine, purpose for helping us as a people release the 
the pain, release the, the fear, the ignorance. And then at one point in the song, I, it's, it's basically like, look, Mississippi River, you're good. You did your part. You've come here. You've done what you could do. Let's leave these riverboats and gamblers. You've done your part to cleanse them of their sin. So I think maybe that speaks to where I'm at. A, because it's kind of a romantic song. I'm a romantic person. More and more, I'm just trying to embrace that. And B, I think my music, I feel like there's a little bit of a, a duty in my music to offer some healing. You know, I want my music to be medicinal when it can be, because music does that for me. Poetry and music does that for me. It's like, it's medicinal. So, so the name of this release, it's Into the Woods. <laughs> no, no, not into the woods, yeah. not the Sean time. Um, it's from the woods to from the, the stars. Woods. Yes, yes. So I released the EP last year, and it was just from the woods with ellip- ellipse mark from the woods dot dot dot. And then that's because it wasn't finished. But now, having finished you know, the rest of the songs, I've elongated the title from the woods to the stars, and I think that's the journey of the whole album. You know, the first song is actually called Stars, but that's very much an in-the-woods kind of experience because to be in the woods, it's dark. It's probably a little frightening, it, you know, if you're, if you're not at home in the woods. It's a little mysterious. And to me, in the woods is in the world. I mean, in a way, we're all in the woods because there's so many dynamics at play, like my career, I want to, I want to make something of myself or my relationships. I want to, I want to get love and I want to give love and, you know, any number of other things. I want to be strong. I want to be brave. I want to be whatever it is you want to be. The world is, is your forest to, uh, kind of bounce these feelings off of. And then to the stars is this transcendent thing of, oh yeah, but there's something that is above all of this. There's something that's up, shining down on the woods <laughs> that is um, equally important for us to tap into. It gives us that perspective uh, when we're in the woods. I think it's important to be in the woods. It's important to be in the world and and whatever it is you want to do in this life, you got to do it. But you got to remember that there's something that's just shining down over all of it and to access that dimension as much as possible. In addition to the songwriting and the performing, you also teach yoga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell? Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> not, not necessarily, but, yeah. well, maybe. Yeah. But why do you do that? What's, what is that experience for you? Well, yeah, I've been doing that for almost a decade now. That is a really interesting question. I do that because it's like today's equivalent of waiting tables for an artist in Los Angeles. You, uh, you know, you gotta, gotta pay the bills and I'm a terrible waiter, but I'm quite a good yoga teacher. I mean, for me, it entered my life at a time when I was really just ripe for it to, uh, take root. You know what I'm saying? I was, it was very fertile soil. I was right out of college, opening up to a sort of spiritual understanding of life. And also had a lot of ambition. So yoga helps you harness all these forces and apply them. If you're doing it right, it'll help you focus your energies in a way that are conducive to your own evolution. 
I needed it and I felt that it was working. So I fell in love with it. And then by some happenstance, I, I took a teacher training. Like I said, I needed, needed to pay the bills. So I started teaching. Then that was in Chicago. When I moved to Los Angeles, I thought I'll go to LA and it'll be warm all the time. Chicago's pretty damn cold. It'll be warm all the time. Maybe I'll take up surfing. I'll teach yoga. I'll play the guitar. I'll sing songs. Everything's will be, be groovy. You know, you get to Los Angeles and you realize like, Oh, this is like a city city. This is like the rent is high. There's work to be done and there's a lot of ambition in this town. So I think that when I got there, it was a rude awakening that it wasn't just going to be an endless vacation. So I kind of upped my yoga teaching. It had been good to me. So I doubled down on it and was teaching an inordinate amount of classes, something like 20 classes a week, which is exhausting mentally, physically, and emotionally. But again, this has always been a theme in my life. There's a feeling of I have something to share with people, something I want to share with people, whatever it is that they can take it or leave it. But if it, if it's does them some good, then I'm happy to share it. So I think the yoga is one manifestation of that. And I'm grateful for it because I wouldn't be thinking about manipulating people's subconscious through my lyrics if I hadn't gone into yoga and meditation and stuff. But it, it is a little bit of a trap to identify as a, as a yogi. It can become an identity just like anything else. And when you do that, you have to suppress other parts of yourself. So this wandering <laughs> bard character that I like to play sometimes, I find, I find that, that it offers a nice balance to my yogi identity. I don't want my students to put me in a, a box or on a pedestal. Some of them are not in danger of doing that. People tend to project things onto you when you're, when you're teaching yoga, you're, you're up there, you're kind of guiding them through physical postures. Sometimes you're chanting mantras. Sometimes you're offering them visualizations and they're having these awakenings within themselves. And it's really the work that's doing it, but it's easy for the student to, and I know I've done this, to project onto the, the person who's just offering the work that, that somehow they have a higher ability or place, you know, and, and sometimes it's just mutual respect. And sometimes it's, I want to make you a something other than the human being that's standing in front of me. So I like to stay grounded in, in the woods mm. on that for that reason. What would you say is the greatest lesson that you extracted from the teaching of yoga that you applied to the art of music? Presence. The, the ability to be present. When you're up there and you're playing your instrument or you're singing, you can easily go down this mental rabbit hole of, oh shit, that's the wrong note. Or like, I wanted a little more something on that riff or, you know, I need to burn a little bit more here or whatever it is. And when you do that, you're in your head and you're, you're criticizing yourself in the moment. And when you do that, you stop relating to the audience. It's like, again, it's like sex. If you're criticizing yourself in the middle of a sex act, you're not going to be doing it very well. And I think it has a sort of downward spiral effect talking about performance now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, it all applies. But if you are loving, this is something I got from Kenny Werner, amazing, amazing teacher. He's a jazz guru. Kenny Werner, he says that if you, if you love every sound that you 
that you make when you touch your instrument, what you're doing is you're giving permission to the audience to love whatever it is they're doing in their lives. You know, you're, if I love every sound, even the bad notes, if I'm, if I think, Oh, that was beautiful. I just love that clam that I hit. Then you're, you're going to be in the flow. You're going to get out of your way. You jam the frequency of self-criticism and then something comes through you. And that's what we want to see. We want to see people mess up and we want to see them embrace those mistakes you know, one of the worst things to see on stage is like someone messing up and like feeling tense about having messed up and you, right. can, and you see they have their own little drama and suddenly you're outside of it. But if you can somehow invite the audience into that, that little accident, quote unquote, and like love it, then you're in something together. And that's yoga. That's yoga. Yoga is taking whatever's coming up in the present moment and loving it. Hmm. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Billy Gill? <laughs> uh, that question is probably the best thing about being Billy Gill right now. You ask me that. That's a great question. <laughs> the best thing about being Billy Gill, man, there's a lot of good things. But at the same time, I've only ever been Billy Gill that I can remember. So the best thing, I feel very lucky that I things come fairly easily. I've always been, uh, I think this is just like a fluke of, of my personality. I've always been pretty laid back. And if something's not working out, you know, I'm like anybody else. I'll, I'll push on it for a little while. But the, the discord that I feel within myself gets to a point where I'm like, nah, if this is, if this is how I'm feeling, then there must be something off. So, so I think, I think my, one of my best, attributes. The best part about being Billy Gill is the ability to come back to um, the fundamental understanding that life is beautiful and that life is, it's terrible. Don't get me wrong. Life is terrible, but terror and beauty are side by side. And I take the whole thing in and I say, yes, yes. I don't know if that's, if that's fundamental to my personality or if that's something I've learned, but that's my ace in the hole these days. What is the most important thing? Most important thing? Well, people ask me sometimes as a joke, what's the meaning of life? Billy, what's the meaning of life? Because, you know, again, that, that yoga teacher thing, we're all kind of in on the joke. Like, oh, yeah, we're all, you're like playing guru right now and, that, and like I'm in on it. So what's the meaning of life, Billy? And, you know, usually it's, it's, it's like we've reached a point in the conversation where we're talking about deep things and we're like, oh, you don't fucking know. So, Billy, hey, what's the meaning of life? And I've been asked that question enough times where I have a stock answer, like right off the bat. Oh, it's love. Duh. It's love. So, love is the most important thing. That's it. It's not all that complex. It's very simple. Love is that, that thing that I'm trying to communicate in my music. It's, it's when something inside of me feels that there's something inside of you that is the same as me. So it's a, it's a shared being. There's a shared being there when two people love each other. And why else would there be more than one thing in the universe? So we say, what's the most important thing? I guess that would be the, the thing that is, you know, I wanted to say God, but that's very personal and there, there might be atheists listening to this and they might take offense to that. But what I'm talking about is when I say God is I'm talking about 
that one thing that is the source of all things. You know, there's a, a, a uh, there's consciousness in the universe. If only in one person, I mean, you're sitting there and you can feel that you have consciousness and I'm sitting here and I can feel that I have consciousness, but that consciousness is a, um, you know, that's the, the primordial thing that got the whole thing started, you know, and it didn't happen on its own. I think of life as, and I think of nature as, I think of people as life trying to experience itself. So you have consciousness and you have nature and consciousness without nature is just a dead thing, right? And nature without consciousness is, it's moot. You know, it's, it's not anything. It's just potential. And so love, love is the thing when the two get together, you have consciousness and you have potential and then the energy. That's a tough one. What's the most important thing? That's tough, but it's my best attempt. Who is Billy Gill? Billy Gill is a collection of, <laughs> of experiences, a physical body, a, a physical manifestation of nature. Billy Gill is a name that I inherited from my dad, who was William Gill. But Billy Gill is also that divine consciousness. Billy Gill is also that potential energy. And in this life, you know, so this is, I'm, I've definitely gone down the yoga rabbit hole here, but so if I've got this, if I've got this karma, I've got this stuff to work out in this life. And I think that everybody has something to do here. Otherwise, like why show up? Right. You know, I am a, a whole list of karmic propensities. So I got work to do and I'm not really interested in, in getting off the, the wheel of existence or anything like that, which is a big Hindu and Buddhist thing. But I do believe that there's something that goes beyond Billy Gill, you know, something that will continue when I'm dead. So ultimately, Billy Gill is, is this kind of rented personality and person and, and karmic hodgepodge, a great way to experience existence. And thankfully, the only one I, I can experience existence through at this point. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but I think that's what I got. Who is Billy Gill? <laughs> He's scratching his head right there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, me too, man. Always a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah. See you in 10 years. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer. Written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>